I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China's signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Hello and welcome to this instalment of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast for 2022. My name is Tim Barham. This week, I have the privilege of sitting down with distinguished academic Dr. Charles Miller. Dr. Miller lectures international relations at the Australian National University. His research interests include global strategy, military effectiveness, and foreign policy. Dr. Miller's work in these areas has been published in leading journals, including the Australian Journal of Political Science, the Australian Journal of International Affairs, World Politics, and the Journal of Peace Research, in which he won the Gleditch Article of the Year Award in 2016. Beyond academia, Dr. Miller has applied his skills and knowledge to roles within the Australian Army, the US Army's Strategic Studies Institute, the US Embassy in Canberra, and KPMG. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Miller. So I think we should just get straight into the questions today. Russia's initial offensive was described as an embarrassing failure. Since then, however, Russia has slowly but consistently gained territory in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Is calling Russia's invasion a failure an accurate characterization? Well, I think the simple answer to that is that um, we don't know yet because the war is still ongoing. The likely ending of the war, I would say, is probably going to be something rather ambiguous. It's unlikely that Russia will um, be able to capture all of Ukraine, overthrow the Zelensky government and install some kind of a puppet regime, which would probably be the, the maximal Russian goal. But at the same time, I also think it's quite unlikely that Ukraine will be able to expel Russian forces from all occupied um, Ukrainian territory. So will a sort of intermediate ambiguous result be a victory for Russia or a defeat for Russia, um, I don't think it could really be characterised um, objectively as being, a, as being a victory, but I don't think it's a great outcome for Ukraine either. Perfect. And regardless of whether you can call it a failure or not, certainly Russia has more successfully in the last couple of months gained territory. So what strategic changes have resulted in this shift? Well, I mean, this this results from the fact that the Russians have changed the main axis of attack from being towards Kiev to um, the Donbass area in eastern Ukraine. And the tactics that they've employed in order to make gains there have been basically to aim at capturing a small amount of territory um, on each occasion. So basically um, plaster the area that they're looking to attack with artillery, um, to try and weaken the Ukrainian defences and then make small incremental advances one by one. So because the Russians have done this, as opposed to their previous tactics in Kiev, which were essentially based on them sending armoured columns down roads without proper infantry support, where they were really sitting ducks for Ukrainian anti-tank forces, that the shift um, to these um, kind of attritional type artillery intensive tactics are probably what results in Russia being more successful in this area than they were in Kiev. Interesting. So with that in mind, what do you believe Russia's initial short and long-term objectives were, and how are they likely to have changed at this point in the conflict? Well, I think it's quite clear that Russia's objectives for the war initially 
were to take the whole of Ukraine, depose the Zelensky government and install some kind of a puppet regime. I mean, we know that Russian soldiers, for example, were sent towards Kiev with a set of dress uniforms for the victory parade in Kiev. So it's clear that that's what their, that's what their goal was. In terms of um, what their goals are now, I mean, it really depends. Um, I think that part of what they want to do is to um, capture enough Ukrainian territory um, that they can basically point to this and say that they've, they've won a victory. So that would be the whole of the Donbass, um, both Do- Donetsk and Luhansk um, oblasts, and also um, the majority of the Ukrainian coastline, so that they can link up the territory that they took in Crimea in 2014 with the territory um, of the Donbass and shrink Ukraine to a, um, a much smaller area closer to Western Europe. I think that that's now what they're doing. But, you know, to be honest, if, if Ukrainian resistance were to collapse tomorrow and the Russians were able to um, advance very rapidly, there's no reason why they wouldn't then default, I think, back to their goal of taking Kiev. In that sense, I don't think their objectives have changed. Right, interesting. So in that case, do you think it's quite likely that Putin then at this point will be looking to secure the Donbas and Luhansk regions as a consolation prize of sorts to sort of buy time to regroup and reorganise and potentially take another crack at taking Ukraine generally in the future? Um, I think that that has to be the fear, certainly. If you're on the Ukrainian side um, and you have a ceasefire proposal from the Russians or peace talks proposals from the Russians, you have to think that that's going to be the fear. That's what happened with Chechnya. So in the uh, mid-1990s, um, Russia under Boris Yeltsin um, attempted to forcibly reincorporate Chechnya um, into the Russian Federation. Um, they failed, withdrew, but then um, they went back in again in 1999 to finish the job. So I would be very, very concerned about that if I was Ukraine. Fantastic. So to move on, the US Senate recently voted overwhelmingly to admit Finland and Sweden to NATO. What are the likely implications of further NATO expansion? I think that on balance it's a good thing for NATO. So Finland and Sweden are both highly capable states. Um, Finland especially um, is very powerful militarily. It has a large reserve-based force because they still have national service in Finland, very high-quality training, motivation, and so on. So I think it's a net bonus for um, for NATO. In terms of the concerns that um, have been voiced by some analysts about the um, in the United States anyway, but the United States then having to defend Finland and Sweden then from Russia. That is, you know, that that is an issue. But nonetheless, I can't really see, I mean, of, of the, the situations in which I would envisage Russia acting aggressively again, the most likely um, flashpoints would be um, in the Baltic states, especially Estonia, as opposed to um, against Finland or Sweden, that they don't really have you know, any kind of territorial grievances against. In fact, if anything, it's Finland that has a territorial grievance against um, against Russia. So I don't think that this really um, imposes particularly onerous additional liabilities on NATO and the United States, but it adds two very capable um, military powers um, to NATO's ranks. So I think overall it's a good um, good deal for NATO. Interesting. And I mean, on that point, Russia has promised to respond if that was to occur. What kind of nature do you think a Russian response to that would take? 
I, I, of course they're going to say they're going to respond to it, but there's nothing they can really do about it, to be honest. Um, are they going to invade Finland? What, what are they going to invade Finland with? They've got the vast majority of their forces tied down right now and being chewed up in Ukraine. There's nothing they can really do about it. They can try some cyber attacks against Finnish targets, by all means. Um, but I think that Finland is quite well prepared for that. So honestly, I think it's a lot of hot air from the Russians about that. Interesting. Now, sticking with the topic of NATO and, by extension, the EU, in the special address by President Zelensky last week, hosted by the ANU Centre for European Studies, Zelensky emphasised that Russia's actions since its invasion of Ukraine are not a standalone incident, but rather expose Russia's rejection of the international order. Consistent with this, Zelensky stated that the international community must remain united in holding Russia to account through sanctions and conversely continue to provide military and economic support to Ukraine. So first I'd like to ask you, how successful do you think sanctions have been thus far? And following that, facing economic and political pressures, what is the scope for Zelensky's message to be heeded by the international community? That's two very good questions. In terms of sanctions, um, so those of you who are, you know, international relations or strategic studies students probably be familiar with the term compellence. Yeah, so compellence is basically the equivalent of deterrence, except instead of trying to prevent someone from doing something, you're trying to compel someone to um, stop doing something they're already doing. Okay, so compellence. In this case, sanctions are a compellent tool to try and compel Russia to withdraw its forces. Um, from Ukraine. Um, you may also be um, familiar with the terms deterrence by denial and deterrence by punishment. So deterrence by um, punishment is essentially the idea that you impose strategic costs on your adversary to the point where they will basically, you know, tap out or cry uncle or whatever and give you what you want. Um, deterrence by Denial, by contrast, is where you deter your opponent from doing something by removing their ability to do it, even if they wanted to. Um, so deterrence by um, punishment would be something like um, a strategic nuclear strike on a target. Um, and deterrence by um, denial would be a strategic a nuclear strike or a conventional strike against the enemy's military forces, so removing the ability to do what they want to do. I think that this distinction now is important because um, essentially there's two strands to the sanctions. There's an idea of the sanctions being about compellence by punishment. So basically you're imposing costs on the Russian elite and the Russian people in order to get them to give in and um, withdraw from the Ukraine. But there's also an element um, which is underrated in this case of um, compellence by denial. So the sanctions are actually preventing Russia's ability, actual physical ability to do what it wants to do in Ukraine. Now in terms of um, compellence by punishment, the evidence would tend to suggest that that's unlikely to work. Historically, sanctions don't have a great track record in terms of um, getting states to change their behaviour through punishment. It tends not to result in um, regime change. In fact, it tends to entrench regimes in power because um, it prevents the formation of alternative centres of wealth and power within the country. So I'm not very sanguine about the, the prospects for compellence by um, punishment. Compellence by denial, on the other hand, I think that that's a very much underrated part of the sanctions for this reason. Um, so in order to make its military equipment and to maintain and repair its military equipment, 
The Russians need to have access to high technology components, mostly coming from Western countries. Um, I mean, even down to, you know, supply trucks and so on, you know, there are parts that they'll need to get from Italy or Germany or whatever. And in that sense, in fact, the ability of the Russian economy to supply the Russian war machine is being badly affected by sanctions. Um, and also the effects or the ability of the Russian economy to make goods of any great value is also being um, affected by, by this. So essentially, I see the sanctions as being most effective um, because they're a form of compellence by denial, if you like. They're preventing the Russians from being able to re-equip, maintain, repair and get new weaponry that they can use against Ukraine. Now, in terms of Zelensky's message being heeded by the international um, community, I think that that is something to be concerned about. There are some countries that I think are pretty much rock solidly in the Ukrainian camp and that they'll be able to rely on pretty much whatever. Um, those would be the eastern NATO members, Poland, the Baltics, etc. The UK, um, for instance, Australia, I think. I think we're all quite, you know, strongly in the Ukrainian camp. The two countries that I think Zelensky really, or two or perhaps three countries that you'd really need to worry about are the United States, Germany and France. So um, in the United States, they've got the midterms coming up in November, where it's likely that the Republicans will gain control of Congress again. Now, what the Republicans will think about further requests from the Biden administration to give aid to Ukraine um, is not clear. More traditional Republicans like Mitch McConnell, um, I think, would be strongly in favour of um, granting those requests. But the more Trumpy populist element who include a fair number of unabashed Putin supporters, those individuals will probably not be quite so um, inclined to give more aid to Ukraine. Then there's Germany as well. So, I mean, Germany has dragged its feet um, on aid to Ukraine and on cutting off Russian gas supplies from the beginning. A large part of the German business and political elite was deeply implicated in um, dealings, business and political dealings with Russia. Um, and so, you know, if um, the public in Germany starts to tire of the war, um, starts to tire of, um, you know, the, the costs that are being imposed on them by the, the, the interruption of business with Russia, then, you know, you're going to hear these voices starting to press for you know, Germany to, to let up on, um, you know, aid to Ukraine and sanctions. And France, similarly, I mean, you know, Germany gets a lot of bad press for its lack of support to um, Ukraine. France is actually in many ways even worse. If you look at the amount of, um, as a dollar value of the defence aid that's gone um, to Ukraine, France has actually provided less than Australia, um, I believe. At least that was the case not too long ago. And France is a bigger country, closer to the closer to the region and so on so that's quite quite bad and also of course you know you have in France the Front National which are very closely um, aligned with Putin so the, you know these are the, the countries that I think Zelensky needs to really um, concentrate on. I think, you know, um, he, he enjoys a lot of popularity with the public. So many of these countries, so I really think that that's where he needs to be focusing his message on. I was really glad to see him here at the ANU, but honestly, I think he would have been much better giving a speech like that in, you know, in Berlin or, um, you know, Washington, D.C. or Paris than, than he would have been in Australia. Great. And so um, it's quite likely then that Putin's approach will be a sort of attempt to divide and conquer, if you will, in terms of breaking those sanctions and breaking yeah. that support for Ukraine. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, Italy is really a weak link, but Italy is not very important in terms of the aid it gives to Ukraine. So, I mean, sure, Putin can peel Italy off, but that doesn't really amount to very much. Um, if, however, um, you know, Germany started dragging its feet even more than it already has been, that's a big deal. And if the United States stops supporting Ukraine, that's game over, really. Speaking of support to Ukraine, the major advantages that Russia has maintained throughout the conflict being those associated with their far superior artillery advantage, both in number and in quality. The introduction of US-supplied HIMARS multiple rocket launcher systems to Ukraine's arsenal has been credited with several recent attacks well into Russian-controlled territory. So how is the recent addition of these weapons likely to impact the conflict? Well, I mean, it's, it's already been impacting the conflict. The, the main reason is, I mean, the HIMARS have got longer range um, than anything the Ukrainians had before. Um, the Russians' major advantage was that they had um, more long-range um, artillery than the, the Ukrainians did. So effectively they could, um, you know, assuming that they were able to put down enough ordnance, that is to, to lay down enough fire, they could basically knock out Ukrainian heavy weaponry without being vulnerable to any um, Ukrainian counter. And that's what was really behind their advances um, at the Donbass. Um, now, what HIMARS does is it actually matches that up. Now, I mean, we shouldn't go over the top because Ukraine is still outgunned, but HIMARS does even out the range issue. And the Ukrainians have very cleverly used the HIMARS to target Russian ammunition dumps and logistics and so on, which has kind of frozen the Russian army in place in a number of places. So HIMARS have been really, really important. Fantastic. And so... The U.S. was previously hesitant to provide these weapons due to concerns that they could be used against targets within Russia. Russia has already claimed that the U.S. and NATO are engaging in a proxy war through their support for Ukraine, and that this raises the risk of escalating the conflict and potentially bringing in a third party. Does the introduction of the HIMARS create risks of conflict escalation, particularly in the event of attacks within Russia's territory? Well, I mean, it's already happened. So, yeah, I think we have the answer to that. And the answer is actually no. You know, they've brought in the HIMARS and Russia has not escalated the conflict. Um, and I think, in fact, that, the, the, you know, the fear of conflict escalation, in my view, I think it means that there's some things that Western countries can't do. Um, I don't think the Western countries can send their own ground forces into Ukraine. I don't think they can have a no-fly zone. Um, I don't think that they can attack Russia. I think all of these would bring about an unacceptable risk of nuclear escalation. Okay, so basically any of those things that mean that soldiers in British or American or German or French or whatever uniforms as being paid by the United States, Britain, Germany, France with their weapons under the command of, you know, British, American, German, whatever, um, NATO forces directly fighting against the Russians in some way, that is too escalatory. I believe that risks nuclear war. But weapon supplies, quite clearly, I think, don't, because the West has been pumping weapons into um, Ukraine now since the beginning of the conflict, in fact, even before the conflict, of all different types, uh, without which Ukraine would not have been able to resist the Russian invasion, and Russia has not used nuclear weapons. They've rattled the sabre a few times, but they haven't used nuclear weapons. And so I would say if all of these this weaponry has been coming in, um, I don't see how sending a little bit more weaponry 
is really going to make any is really going to make any difference to the risk of nuclear escalation. I don't think it's something the Russians would escalate over, because you've got to ask yourself. If the Russians use nuclear weapons, then they make themselves vulnerable to Western retaliation. The United States, Britain and France all have nuclear weapons and they can wipe Russia off the face of the earth, including Vladimir Putin and his family. Now, if you are Putin, would you want to risk that when the alternative is an outcome in Ukraine that is certainly not ideal, but it's probably not something that is going to lose you your place in power. So I don't think that the Russians would escalate to nuclear weapons over that, um, over over um, just additional Western supplies of arms. Only a direct military clash between NATO forces and Russian forces um, carries that level of unacceptable risk, in my view. Right, so moving on to a Slight side note, but uh, an interesting and related topic. Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has resulted in quite significant escalations of the tensions in the Taiwan Strait. I would like to ask you, how valid do you think the parallels are being drawn between Russia's revisionism in its invasion of Ukraine and China's aggression toward Taiwan? Well, I think there there are some differences. First of all, so according to, you know, international law and doctrine, Taiwan is actually part of China. You know, the one China policy is de facto a fiction, but, you know, in legal terms, it's accepted by, you know, most of the world. So therefore, um, you know, that's straight away a difference. I mean, Ukraine and Russia used to be part of the same country, the Soviet Union, but Ukraine, uh, Russia recognized Ukraine's independence when it left the Soviet Union. There was no, um, you know, ambiguity about that. So um, I think that that is um, quite different. There are lots of similarities as well. Um, You know, ultimately, um, Ukraine and Russia are quite similar countries. I mean, I think Russia and Ukraine, obviously the Ukrainians want to distance themselves more and more from the Russians. Even Russian-speaking Ukrainians want to uh, since the start of this war as a result of what Russia has done. But nevertheless, you know, you're talking about um, two Slavic peoples with closely related languages, mostly in both cases um, following some form of Orthodox Christianity. They were formerly um, a large part, not all of the Ukraine, but a large part of the Ukraine. It was part of the Russian Empire. Um, It was part of the Soviet Union. And um, there are lots of Russian speakers in Ukraine. There are lots of family ties between um, Ukrainians and Russians. And so therefore, you know, there's there's a lot of cultural similarity. And yet, you know, Russia is evolving more and more into a totalitarian state while Ukraine is this kind of messy democracy. And the same thing, I think, same kind of dynamic you see in, in China, because, you know, China and Taiwan, again, it's a much more complicated history rather than just Taiwan was part of China. Taiwan wasn't relevant to the Chinese Empire at all for um, most of its history. It was taken by um, a Chinese privateer from the Dutch in the 17th century and then taken from the, the Chinese by the Japanese in the late 19th century and returned only in 1945 um, to um of the Kuomintang, uh, which was the Chinese government at the time. So, I mean, the connection between China and Taiwan is nothing like as deep and long-standing um, as it's often made out to be. But nonetheless, you know, the majority of Taiwanese are um, ethnic Chinese. Um, a large proportion, if not the majority, are descended from people who left, that fled the mainland in 1949. So the cultural family ties are and historical ties are very strong. So what you've got really is you've got a large um, authoritarian, if not totalitarian state, 
um, which desires control over a territory which is very, very historically linked and very culturally similar, but democratic, under democratic government, and aligned with, if not formally allied to, the United States and um, the Western Alliance. So that's kind of the, 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 the similarities. Um, the differences, again, I mean, you know, we, we have to remember China hasn't invaded anybody yet. Russia has invaded a sovereign state with no pretext whatsoever and committed the most unspeakable, brutal, disgusting atrocities that we've seen in conventional European war since 1945. China hasn't done these things yet. So I think it's important. I mean, I say yet as if at some point it will. Maybe it won't ever. Um, but, you know, I think we really need to bear in mind this fundamental distinction. When we talk about China, it hasn't actually done anything yet. That's really anything like comparable to what Russia has done. So I think that that's an important thing to bear in mind um, because Russia has made its malign intentions and malign behaviour quite apparent to the rest of the world. Whereas with China, I think there is still room to be um, somewhat optimistic that it can continue its rise in, in peaceful um, ways that are not necessarily incompatible with, with Western um, interests. Wherein, in, whereas in the case of Russia, there is no such optimism, I think, while um, Vladimir Putin remains their president. Um, in terms of the strategic situation, so... Um, I remember Hugh White was on um, Q&A a few weeks ago and he said, well, actually, it's easier for Ukraine to defend itself against Russia than it would be for Taiwan to defend itself against China. Um, the reason being that, um, you know, um, Ukraine can easily be supplied over the border, um, the land border um, with Poland and Romania, the other NATO countries. Uh, point is well taken, but um, there's another point he failed to, failed to mention, which is that Russia didn't have to cross a huge body of water in order to invade Ukraine. They just had to basically cross over, over land. Um, you know, an, an opposed amphibious landing is one of the most difficult operations to pull out in terms of warfare. If you look at D-Day, the amount of planning that went into it, um, the, the air superiority, the fact that they w had to wait until the Wehrmacht had been pretty much annihilated in Russia before they even attempted it, shows just how hard it is. So, you know, having read up about, you know, some of the results of US Army simulations and so forth, and combat simulations, basically have to make some pretty um, from the point of view of China, optimistic assumptions before you come out with the idea that China can actually capture Taiwan through an invasion. So I actually think that in many ways, from, from what I have seen from the evidence that I've, that I've read, um, if China was to be genuinely smart about it, their best way of um, defeating Taiwan in a war would be a blockade as opposed to um, as opposed to an invasion which could go very, very badly wrong for them. So I actually think that Taiwan is in many ways more defensible um, than Ukraine. Um, an additional factor, by the way, is that um, the Ukrainians had to defend across a very, very large front. I mean, a front which, if you applied it to the Asia-Pacific, would extend from, I think, um, the Philippines all the way up to the north of Japan. Like, that's the equivalent um, length of frontage that the Ukrainians had to defend against with a relatively small army. Whereas with um, Taiwan, with the Republic of China, the, the, the frontage, the possible places where um, the Chinese could land are much, much smaller. It's much easier to predict and preempt where they would come and therefore easier to defend. Partly also because Taiwan is very mountainous too. So I really um, frankly think that, that Taiwan is much more defensible than Ukraine. 
And if the Taiwanese were to adopt more of a hedgehog strategy based on distributed lethality um, and so forth, that's similar in many ways to the strategy the Ukrainians used in the defence of Kiev, um, I think they can make it even more difficult still for the Chinese to, to take them over. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those insights. So just to conclude our discussion, would you be able to recommend our listeners any books on the topics we've covered today? I'll have to think for a second about that one. Um, okay, so one book that, that pops into my head that's a fantastic read about Vladimir Putin's rise to power um, and his goals is a book called Putin's People by Catherine Belton. So she's an investigative journalist um, who's tracks Putin's rise and her thesis is that um, Vladimir Putin... Um, from quite early on was kind of like the, the sort of chosen candidate of what's called the Siloviki, that is the um, sort of strongmen of the Russian security state. So they felt that they had lost power through the destruction of the, the Soviet Union and so um, they plotted to get it back from, you know, reform-minded Russian politicians. And the way they did this was effectively to cede Vladimir Putin in the kind of liberal reformist camp so that he can take power via the patronage of um, more liberal-minded politicians like Yeltsin. And then once he's got power, then he can sort of re-establish an authoritarian militarist state. So the idea then is that um, you know, Putin was um, kind of their man from the beginning and what he's doing now, what's unfolding now, is what was always baked into the plan right from the 1990s. That's um, that's her view on the matter. In terms of um, understanding about um, modern military operations, a book I w- would always recommend is um, Stephen Biddle's Military Power. Um, and he has a theory about um, the modern system of warfare, which is basically the key to victory on the battlefield. Uh, he sort of goes into great depth about you know, like why countries will adopt the modern system, why they won't, um, and how if you have the modern system, um, you are very likely to win, and if you don't, you're very likely not to. And it has a lot of applications to the current conflict in Ukraine, especially with regard to um, Russian tactics. Um, and the book that I was talking about where I was talking about Taiwan and China, um, I think the name is Michael O'Hanlon. Um, it's called The Science of War. So this is about the scientific planning aspects of the US military. And as basically, almost as an aside, um, he talks about you know simulations and how to think about the prospects for success of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. And he shows through a very, you know, extensive kind of probing of different assumptions and so on that it would actually be really quite difficult for them to, to take it through a direct assault. And actually what they would be much better doing would be through blockade options. So that's really influencing what I'm saying about Taiwan. Those all sound fascinating. And I would strongly encourage any of our listeners to check those out. So that will bring us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, Dr. Miller. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome.